east of Lake Tahoe, and now just drove down um, Jackie, you know, wonderful children's minister, Jackie. She drove to Lake Tahoe to pick us up. She's like the most amazing person in the world. But um, so, and my wife, part of our whole journey down here is just, we have a baby, and the wheels have been coming off this last week. This kid's got teeth popping in. He's figuring out how to walk. He's just screaming his head off all the time. And like a vacation with a child is not a vacation. There's, it's a trip. We've taken a trip to California. Um, so, but Alex, she is a yes. So she is doing very, very well, and she's continuing to do some graphic design and works for this. Uh, card company, Good Paper, and it's based in San Francisco, so she's continued to do that, as well as the incredible uh, fun and, this point, very challenging task of raising our, our wonderful boy. His name is Augustine. He goes by Gus to his friends. You can call him that. They'll be here the second service. Um, so, But we are in Dallas, Texas, and we have really loved... I, Surprisingly, I enjoy Dallas a lot more than I thought I would coming from the Bay Area, being born and raised in El Cerrito. You know, it's one of those things that I could not imagine being in Texas. And even when my family moved there, it's like, we're never going there. That's just not going to happen. Um, but we somehow managed to find like the one little pocket of Dallas that looks just like the Bay Area and feels just like the Bay Area. And what's great is like it's the expensive part of Dallas, which means like a three-bedroom, two-bath is like three hundred fifty thousand. So, um, <laughs> so we went there. We we got rich like that. Um, <laughs> it was amazing. But anyway, I I'm keeping my timer here, and I'm sorry if I look down a lot because I got like two years of a sermon sitting up in here that. Um, I've just been wanting to share with you all what's been on my heart, so I will do my best to uh, get you out in time for dinner. Um, but <clears throat> I, I, one of the things that God has been putting on my heart lately and has been teaching me is um, it's through the Sermon on the Mount and it's through some interactions that we've been having with various people in the last couple years. And I think part of what God has been stirring in my heart is comes from a place of sadness, and I think that was really pronounced when we moved to Dallas. It was in the, the month leading up to the election, right? And so we went from Berkeley to Dallas right in the middle of this election of all elections, and, and just seeing how polarized um, not just the city was. Like Dallas, you would be surprised to hear it's in Texas, yes, but it's a blue city in a blue county. It's just everybody else is a red city and a red county surrounded by it. But um, the divisions within the church, and it, it was just so painful to see. And this idea that I, I, God kept putting in my mind over and over and over was that the church needs to be the church. That's what the world needs. And it doesn't sound like earth-shattering, but I just had this idea over and over that was the, the church needs to be the church. And the church doesn't need to be the most relevant thing. It doesn't need to be the coolest, uh, the hottest ticket in town. The church needs to faithfully live out the mission that God has called it to be and to do. And, and that is something that um, coming from the Bible Belt, uh, I, I think I've seen how it's so easy for churches to get pulled into certain camps and categories. And, and we're drawing lines in the sand, wanting to define who is in and who is out. Are you with us or are you against us? And, and yeah, I'm sure it was probably more pronounced that um, I'd been on staff at, uh, you know, 
check the boxes for a lot of the stereotypes of an evangelical megachurch. Um, and so coming from this to that, I mean, it's one of those things, I still can't get my mind around this. Last, in 2017, the church had 21,000 visitors for the first time. That was people who came through those doors for the first time and like filled out a welcome card. And it's just painting a picture of how different it is. So that's why I'm excited to turn to the Sermon on the Mount because I believe that we are going to see a picture of the community of God that is going to be that healing balm, the salve um, that the world really needs. So uh, we are still passing out Bibles, I guess. That's uh, two years on. So if you need a Bible, if you want to raise your hand, and we're going to be turning to Matthew chapter 5 um, in just a second. And so, so I want us to, to take a look at the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly, we're going to look at the Beatitudes. And when we look at this, I, I really hope and pray that we are going to see um, that this is exactly what it looks like when people live with their eyes on the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of this world. And so... We're going to be looking at the question of blessed are who? Blessed are who? And um, we are going to look at this and see that the radical blessing of the kingdom of God comes only through the grace of Jesus. And I think Matthew 5, so we're going to look at the first 12 verses, 1 through 12, um, is going to help us see that the radical blessing of the kingdom of God comes only through the grace of Jesus. So we're going to look at two questions today. You know, like I said, I tried to whittle this thing down. It was eight questions, then it got down to four. We're down to two questions that we're going to answer today. So the first one is, who is blessed? How do you get blessed? All right, who is blessed and how do you get blessed? So I'm going to read all of our texts. And let me just pray briefly before we do that. God, I thank you for this church family. And I thank you for the ways that your name is gaining fame and honor through this community and the way that your Holy Spirit is filling up and equipping your servants, your disciples here. Um, You are sending them out into their workplaces and their classrooms and their families. And uh, we honor you and we praise you and we say thank you for this church, especially me who is not here anymore. Um, I, I see that so clearly, the work that you're doing through this community. So thank you, Jesus. And we pray that our time together Um, would help us take that one step further towards your likeness um, and being a part of what you're doing in this city. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Matthew 5, 1 through 12, read with me. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, so that, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So it's God's word, and this is a great word. This is one of the most famous, known, cited, 
messages, uh, lectures. I mean, if we think, you know, these big TED Talks that are widely circulated, this blows that out of the water. And before we really start looking into that, I think some background is helpful. Um, we see in the first few chapters of Matthew, he's, he's talking about the earthly ministry of Jesus. It's just kicked off, and Jesus is going around, and he's preaching in all these different towns, and he's coming with this message where he's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so what is the kingdom of heaven? I mean, as other New Testament writers will say, the kingdom of God. So those phrases are interchangeable. And, and this is something, you know, I got this from Andrew Hoffman years ago, but he's always just said that the kingdom is the place where God's will is being carried out perfectly. So it's, it's that picture of, of where everything is going as the way it should. And so the Jews who were listening to the message, listening to Jesus here, they would have said, oh, yeah, yeah, certainly, we are all about the kingdom. We are ready for that kingdom. We are waiting for God to send his Messiah, where he's going to come, he's going to overthrow the Romans, he's going to restore Israel to power, there's going to be that peace and that justice that we've been longing for. And there's this radical you know, part of Jesus' message where he says, repent, the kingdom is at hand. Or sometimes he says, repent, the kingdom has come near. And that message that the message of Jesus is that he himself is launching God's kingdom here on earth. He himself, and through his disciples and with the power of the Holy Spirit, that God's plan for redeeming all things is starting to take shape. Jesus is launching it in his self. The kingdom isn't this mental nirvana that we are to meditate and to attain this. It's not some paradise that comes only when we die. It's a tangible, world-changing mission that's breaking through in the person of Jesus. So the peace, the health, the joy, the, the, the justice, the love, all these things that we see throughout Scripture that, that God desires and that people are crying out for, all of that is starting to break in through the person of Jesus. And so he's going through these cities with this message, repent, turn from your old ways, get on board with my kingdom mission right now. So he's been going through these towns, and he's starting to get some steam here. It says that crowds are going ahead of him, that when he's getting to these places, there are people that are from all over. For days, they're traveling to bring their sick ones, uh, loved ones, where they want to get them close to Jesus, that they might get healed, because everybody's talking about, there's this preacher. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. All these amazing things are happening, and this is where we pick up in verse 1. So when it says that Jesus is seeing the crowds and he went up on the mountain, you know, I actually think this is really interesting because sometimes Jesus, it will say that he goes up to the mountains to escape the crowds. Well, here it doesn't say that. Here it just says he went up on the mountain and he sat down and his disciples came to him. But we know if we flip to the end of the Sermon on the Mountain, chapter 7, it talks about the crowds are still there. And so we know that the message that Jesus is giving is focusing on his disciples. It says his disciples gather to him. He's teaching his disciples, but the crowds are, are still listening to all of this. So this isn't some, you know, small, um, it's not Gospel Academy, it's Sunday morning. Okay, it's the bigger, bigger picture here. So, and I just want you to remember that phrase that it says, and the disciples came to him. So we're going to come back to that later. So the first question, who is blessed? And I think there's, a lot of ways that people have translated this word, blessed. Um, I even struggle how to say it. Blessed, blessed, 
You know, I feel like when I read it, it's like, blessed are the poor in spirit, but then I say blessed other times, so I don't even know how to say the word, so bear with me if I kind of like switch back and forth between them, but blessed is the most common translation that you'll see in your Bibles. Um, happy is another translation that you'll see. Um, some commentators, some New Testament scholars will say that, that fortunate is an accurate word, but it sounds too lucky, so they don't want to use that. Um, and, and some people have said, well, the best way to really understand this word blessed, the most literal way, is something like congratulations to you. And, but sometimes they don't use that because it just sounds a little corny. But that's the idea that Jesus is conveying here. Um, one scholar, he says, the Beatitudes are a bold and even daring affirmation of the supreme happiness of the recipients of the kingdom proclaimed by Jesus. The reality of the kingdom causes this new, unexpected joy. So I love those words, supreme happiness and unexpected joy. So Jesus, it says he opens his mouth and he starts talking about who is blessed. And you can probably sense the anticipation of, okay, this is what I'm here for. I want to know, what's the good life? What is the sweet spot? Who is blessed? And then he starts going down this list of people, the poor in spirit the meek, the pure in heart, the people who mourn, the people who are persecuted. And you could probably, if you were there, sense a very different demeanor amongst the people when he started talking about who is blessed. Because in this context, the people that Jesus is starting to rattle off, these aren't the people who are blessed. Are you crazy? These are the, the last people who we consider blessed. In many ways, these are the opposite of what we, we say in that, this day and age here of who is blessed. And so I think sometimes the, the words of, of teachings like this, sometimes their radical nature gets lost because, you know, we're familiar with Christianity. You know, we read through this and we think, oh, these are, these are good things. This is a, a list describing good Christian people, right? C.S. Lewis, he was once asked, about the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mountain and asked if he cared for them. And he said, well, as to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read this passage with tranquil pleasure. So, the nature of what Jesus is saying is countercultural. It's radical. And if, if you haven't been paying attention, hear me now, okay? This is, I really want you to hear me now. The Beatitudes are not a set of laws for us to follow. The Beatitudes are not entrance requirements for the kingdom of God. The Beatitudes are a picture of the radical, upside-down, and otherworldly nature of God's kingdom. These people were not supposed to be the ones who were blessed. You know, remember it says that they were, crowds were coming, they were bringing the sick, they were bringing the demon-possessed, they were bringing those who were mourning, and Jesus is, is healing them. And so those are the people that are in the crowds, and you can imagine they're maybe that, that person who just got healed, well, you're, you're scooting over a little bit because, well, I, I know that guy. You know, he's been demon-possessed. He certainly is not blessed, right? And so feeling a little like, this is an interesting crowd here. And then Jesus starts saying, these are the people 
who are blessed. Now, I, I got to say just a quick little footnote here. Um, for hundreds of years, not exaggerating, people have debated the Sermon on the Mount and what is it talking only about the future? Is it talking only about the here and now? And I think debate is going to continue on and on and on. But one of the things that most people say is that there is a future component to the Sermon on the Mount. There is a future component that says that the picture that Jesus is giving of the kingdom is not fully going to be realized until Jesus comes again. Okay? But most scholars, most uh, you know, theologians, New Testament writers, I, I wanted to read as many as I could, most, but the primary point that Jesus is making is the radical nature of the kingdom of God as it is breaking in today. So, I mean, just look, I, I wish we could spend some more time in this, but a handful, or I'll go through some of these quickly. The poor in spirit. This is not a state of humility. In Luke's version, in Luke chapter 6, he, he gives a list of the Beatitudes, and they're a little different, but Luke just says, blessed are the poor. And one, one scholar says that Matthew here, he's also talking about the literal poor. He's just highlighting their mindset, that they are utterly dependent on God. They are clinging to God for every breath, for every minute of their life. Blessed are those who mourn. Throughout the Old Testament, people who are mourning, it's a picture of people who have been crushed by injustice. Blessed are the meek. Again, this is not a virtue to strive for. It's a picture of a, a, a people, a trait of people who have been taken advantage of, a people who have been trampled on, a people who have also been crushed by injustice. And similar to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that, that in this context, it's not a desire to be praised. And I know maybe you're thinking, this guy is crazy. That's always how I've read it. But, but hear me, this is not a desire to be praised. The people who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness are because they have not experienced uh, uh, righteousness. They are crying out to God for righteousness. That is their hunger and their thirst. They want to see it come. The merciful. The merciful people are not the people who were in this day and age praised. They were the ones who were taken advantage of. They were the ones who were not go-getters, right? They're, they're the ones who who get abused, and they're the ones who get taken advantage of. The, the pure in heart, you know, in contrast to the false motives of the religious elite of the day and the Pharisees that Jesus is often so critical of, the pure in heart are often overlooked. They're not the ones who are praised. They're not the ones who are lifted up high because they're not showy. They're going about things quietly, and they're doing this for an audience of God, and so they're overlooked. The peacemakers, I mean, think about peacemaking is a precarious position to be in because you're not on one side or the other. And so that means both sides probably don't like you, right? So people who are persecuted, I mean, we look at that now and we say, oh, incredible thing to, to be a martyr, to be persecuted for God. Yes, that is true. But they were still persecuted. And so we can't forget that, like, this is the context that we're seeing this in. They are still being persecuted. So they are not in this exalted, uplifted position. And so Jesus is giving us a picture of a people who are so completely dependent on God. Um, Dallas Willard, some of you know him, I'm sure. He was an amazing man of God, pastor, theologian, 
Um, he taught philosophy at USC for many, many, many years and recently passed away. But he talks about the dangers of misreading this passage because if we look at this as a, a list of things to do, he says it's full-blown legalism. Maybe it's not salvation by works, but it's certainly salvation by attitude. He says that Simon and Garfunkel probably are closer to the better understanding of the Sermon on the Mount when they say, blessed are the sat upon, spat upon, and ratted on. And then Willard goes on, and I love this, he says, so who are the unblessable and the unblessed for you today? The physically repulsive? The flunkouts and the dropouts and the burned outs, the broke and the broken, the drug heads and the divorced, the HIV positive and the herpes ridden, the brain damaged and the incurable ill, the barren and the pregnant too many times or the wrong time, the overemployed, the underemployed, the unemployable, the swindled, the shoved aside, the replaced, the blessing of the kingdom is available even to these. And do you see? how otherworldly God's kingdom is. That there is nothing like this. Even today, there is no way that this makes sense in our world's economy, with our world's value systems. It is turning everything that we prize upside down and on its head. It even goes against evolution, right? Survival of the fittest. Dog eat dog. You know, may the strongest survive. This is completely turned on its head in Jesus' teaching here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says... But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So it's been God's tactic from the beginning. We go all the way back to the Old Testament when God chooses Israel. Why does God choose Israel as his people to work in and through? It's because they had nothing to offer. They were small. They were not particularly wealthy. They were politically insignificant in that day and age. So God's looking at them like, great candidate. Sign them up. Because when they would do great things, people could only look at them and say, God is at work. God is behind this. This is not because of them. It is because of the God behind them. And that is a community, and that is a a way of God, and this is a, a way of life that I think is so needed in the world right now. And I think the world, particularly America, I think is just crying out, is craving us, the church, to be a mirror that reflects God's kingdom, the ways of God, the values of God, that we need to reflect this into the world. And we really need to capture this radical message here that whoever comes to Jesus in faith. The kingdom of God is available to them. So that leads us to our second question. Let me just check my time. Don't mind me. Second question, how do I get blessed? Okay, that's who is blessed. Well, how do I get blessed? And you might think that Jesus is either being incredibly exclusive or I'm missing the point here. Unless you're saying like only the outcasts of society can come in can be included in the kingdom of God, so the wicked people get the kingdom and good people don't? Is that what Jesus is saying here? I mean, there's a lot of you here, I'm, I don't know everybody, but I'm guessing by being in the Bay Area, there's probably a lot of you here that are saying, so am I excluded because I'm educated? I have a good salary? 
I have a good family. I own a ridiculously overpriced house. So am I excluded from the kingdom of God? And clearly that is not the point that Jesus is making. The point that Jesus is making is that no one, no one can encounter the goodness of God in his kingdom without the grace of God extended to us through Jesus Christ. It's a gift that we receive. And Jesus, sees he's casting his net wide, as wide as possible. He's casting his net out there, and he's saying, even to those people way out there, yes, the kingdom of God is available to them. But that catches everybody else, right? And throwing it to the farthest point possible, that catches everybody else. And it's beautiful because it puts us all in the same category. We are all in the exact same place that we all are sinners in need of a Savior. We have all fallen short of God's glorious standard. And I think there's a temptation for us here to misread the Beatitudes in the way of seeing this as a list of things to do, as a, a checklist of, okay, I got to do this, got to do this and that. I think there's a strong temptation there because it keeps the power in our hands. Right? We're the ones who stay in control if we say that I got to do all these things and then I'm going to get blessed. I, I just got to become meek, get blessed. I got to mourn a little, get blessed. You know, hunger and thirst for righteousness, be pure in heart, get blessed. So, <clears throat> as I said, I came here from the Bible Belt, and a lot of people call Dallas the belt buckle of the Bible Belt. I've heard a few cities claim that, so I don't know, but I've heard that. So in the Bible Belt, and really throughout America, you get what some people call these churches that are prosperity churches, or the prosperity gospel, and churches that, that will teach that, that God will bless you when you are faithful. And I think it's so easy to write off these obviously crazy, you know, we can all laugh at the televangelists that you turn on, and TBN, um, I don't even know if that's a channel here in the Bay Area, but it's definitely a channel back in Dallas. And you can see all these people selling, you know, you want to get blessed, you know, buy this water for X amount. Uh, if you want to get blessed, you know, send this and, you know, write a check for this amount and we're going to pray for you. And it's easy to write off just those caricatures of the, the money-grubbing televangelists, right? But the, the reality is that millions and millions of America or of Americans attend churches that teach that God is waiting to bless you if you are just going to be faithful. And it's not just the crazy, oh, those people out there, or the, just for the belt buckle, the Bible belt, but this is a temptation for all of us. Because I, I used to think that the prosperity gospel was all about getting more money, but I think the root issue is deeper, and it's something that we all struggle with, and that is control. We want to be the ones that are in control. And we want to know that when God blesses us, it's because... I deserve that. Man, yeah, of course he's going to bless me. I absolutely deserve this. And then on the flip side, it protects us when things aren't going so well. You know, if it seems like the wheels are falling off, it's, it must be just because I haven't had enough faith. You know, it's in my control still. It must be that I just need to do a little bit more, and then things are going to start clicking, okay? I can, I can do this. I just need to put a little more effort 
into it. And so I hope you see that the issue isn't, oh, the, the prosperity gospel and it's just bad theology, but it, this is our sinful nature, right? This is our desire to just, we want to be the ones in control. We want to keep the keys. We want to be in power, and we want to reduce a dynamic, life-giving, hard-to-figure-out-at-times relationship with Jesus. We want to reduce that to just a set of rules to follow because that is manageable. That is, is easy. And so the question of how do I get blessed, well, I already said it, it's, it's grace. It's 100% grace. You come to faith in Jesus Christ. And the blessing and the joy and the peace of the kingdom that Jesus is giving us a picture of here, that is available, but it's only through the grace of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me. And what happens when we come into contact with this message of grace is that I think it's insulting. I think it's a little humiliating, in some ways offensive. And, and especially in, in America and in, in Western societies where individualism is so strong. It's that, that rugged individual, right, where we say that, <clears throat> that I, am, I am my own man and I make my own decisions and I do things on my own. And if good things happen, it's, yeah, I worked hard for this. And so there is something offensive that says, well, you can't earn this, and you don't deserve this. And on top of that, you get it in the same way that all those people get it too. It's just grace. And that's terrifying. I don't know if that's terrifying to you. That's a little scary to me. And, and I think I, I heard this story. I think it captures it well. I was a pastor in New York City, Tim Keller. I'm sure some of you heard of it told the story of a woman who came up to him after he'd been preaching this message of the, the unearned grace of Jesus Christ. And this woman comes up to him and she says, I think that's a really scary idea. He's like, scary? I never heard anybody say that before. Well, what do you mean scary? And she says, well, if I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or could put me through. I would be like a taxpayer. Oh, thank you, sir. That I, I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if this is really true, that I'm a sinner, that he cannot ask of me. First Corinthians chapter 6, it says that since you were bought with a high price, it's Jesus' death on a cross, since you were bought with a high price, you now belong to Jesus. You are not your own. And that should be exciting and a little terrifying. So if we give up any claim to the goodness of God that has come to us, if we give up any claim that we deserve this, we've done this on our own, then that changes everything for us. It changes everything because that means that, that we don't deserve to be here. Nobody deserves to be here. So we have no authority to say, well, who is in and who is out? Who is the person who is blessed and the person who is not blessed and blessable and not blessable and you're doing this right and you're not doing this right? We are all in the exact same place that we are reliant solely on the grace of Jesus Christ. And there's something that God had been teaching me through um, a relationship with this uh, woman in Texas. Her name was Linda and I'll wrap up today. Um, 
telling a little bit about the story of, of Linda because uh, I feel like really there's two years I just want to catch up with you guys and not sit down and just hang out. But anyway, you probably hate me for that. God brought Linda into my life. It was one Sunday morning where um, actually I was talking to Alex. We were at church, and this woman walks in. Um, in our church, we had these little bags that you get as a gift, and it's your kind of telltale that, oh, that person's here for the first time. They got a bag. So my wife looks over at this woman, and I'm like, I think I'm supposed to go talk to her. I don't know why. I just think God's kind of tapping me on the shoulder, and I'm going to go talk to her. And I mean, probably 10, 15 minutes or so, and, and I look over, and and Alex, my wife, and this woman, Linda, are sitting down together. And my wife is just weeping. And I'm trying to, like, not interrupt, but I want to see what's going on. And, and they kind of part ways. And my wife is just weeping uncontrollably because she had heard this woman's story. And such was the darkness that was in this woman's life that it broke my wife's heart. And she's telling her about, you know, she's, she's a woman in her 30s. And she's severely autistic. And because of those challenges growing up, her father did not understand that. And he abused her severely. And she had been <clears throat> rejected and excluded from so many categories and groups in life. And as she got older, um, she got wrapped up in sex trafficking. And this is in Dallas, Texas, in the United States of America. And for the better part of 10 years, she had been caught up in sex trafficking. And, and just the details... Um, that she shared were, I mean, so hard for me to imagine uh, that this even goes on. And was, such was my ignorance of the nature of, of sin that is so rampant, right? But what was amazing is that she had such a deep understanding of the Bible <clears throat> and such a rich theology. And she memorized more of the Bible than literally anybody I'd ever met before. And so she got this grace thing really, really well. And, and part of her, her burden that she was struggling and, and so overwhelmed by is because of the trafficking piece that she was born a man and she had gender reassignment surgery and she saw that as the only way that she was ever going to escape this world, this, these trafficking rings that she was caught up in. And she even said to me once that, you know, I'm just so desperate and I know God probably is going to get mad at me for this, but <clears throat> I'm so desperate, and I'm just so broken, and I need to get out of this. And I, I, mean, I just could not imagine how, how much that Linda had gone through. And what I had noticed in, that, in my conversations with her, it is so easy to see how people would reject her. People would walk by and very quickly kind of turn the other way, and people would very much make it a point not to make eye contact and not want to get caught up in conversation. And, you know, she had the, the development of a seven-year-old. This is what doctors told her. Mentally, she had the development of a seven-year-old. And she wasn't great at conversation. And she said way too many things. And it was kind of funny sometimes, the things she would blurt out in public. But people avoided her. And that had just broken her heart. So she had been abused. She had been uh, essentially a slave. And she'd also been rejected by Christians and by the church because she was just so difficult. And she was seen as a problem to deal with. And what God had convicted Alex and me of is that in his kingdom, Linda is a blessed person. She is an opportunity 
If I can get closer to her, that's an opportunity for me to get close to the kingdom of God that is breaking through because if she is experiencing blessing, it is only because God is working powerfully in her life. And the Beatitudes are, are the simple picture of, you know, as I said, that phrase, the disciples came to him. These people that are drawing near to Jesus. It's, it's the picture of the wheel, right? The bicycle hub. That as people get closer and closer to Jesus, they're getting closer and closer to all the other spokes on the wheel. They're getting closer to all the other people. And the amazing thing about the church is that the spokes on the wheel, that's a bunch of crazy spokes, right? We are a bunch of crazy, messed up people. And as we draw closer to Jesus, we are going to draw closer to one another. And so we don't, we don't do the Beatitudes to get God to love us and to accept us. We are loved and accepted because of what Jesus did on the cross. But we will take on these traits over time. Make no mistake. All of these traits are going to infiltrate our lives. They're going to become part of our DNA because it's hard to to not be near people who are experiencing the radical blessing of the kingdom of God and not desire that. So we don't seek these beatitudes to to get blessed. I think they're inevitably going to come into our lives. And this is something that I'm sure a lot of you are in home groups, um, something that you experience sitting here in, in worship on Sunday is that one of the most beautiful things about the, the people of God, the church of God, is that we can learn a lot through teaching and through study, but we are going to learn a whole heck of a lot by the people that we're sitting next to. I can't tell you how many home group times where it's like, man, that discussion was horrible, but man, I had an amazing time just hearing the story of so-and-so, or man, I really wanted the, the group to go in this direction, and the wheels came off, but wow. I got to learn so much about Jesus through interacting with different people, with challenging personalities, with that person who talks too much and just trying to love and and to support in that. Those are the things that make us more like Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage you all, Solano Community Church is a beautiful church, and, and I miss it in so many ways. And we are doing something so well is that we gather a lot of really different people together. But there's always going to be a temptation to retreat into communities where people look like us, where they act like us, they've gone to the same school of us. I mean, no offense, y'all, it's a great school. Uh, but <clears throat> but we, we need to, to be in these relationships with people where, where people are different than us, and there's going to be a temptation to retreat to what's easy. Because, I mean, church growth books are going to tell you the easiest way to grow a church is to do a homogeneous church, a bunch of people that look, act, and dress the same. That's the easiest way to grow a church. But if we give in to those temptations, we are going to miss the chance to reflect Jesus and his kingdom to the world. That's why we're here. And I just want to end with this reminder that we do want to reflect the kingdom to the world, but when we reflect the kingdom, the world's going to see foolishness. In the world's eyes, Jesus was a fool. You know, it's foolishness to the world to become poor when you are rich. It's foolishness to become lowly when you are exalted, to become humble when you are the only person who deserves to be proud. Foolishness willingly takes on pain and suffering. And foolishness 
is when a perfect God takes on the sin and unrighteousness of people for no other reason than love. What Jesus did in dying a criminal's death on a cross was foolishness in the eyes of the world. But make no mistake, God turned that foolishness into victory. Make no mistake, when Jesus walked out of that tomb on Easter Sunday, there was no foolishness in that. God turned those things upside down and said, what you mock, what you call foolishness, look at the glorious kingdom that is breaking in through my son, Jesus Christ, right now. As he walks out of that tomb and he is embodying that kingdom and he says, God has not given up on his creation. Let's go. That's what Jesus is saying. Let's go get on board with my mission. Let's do this together. So if, you, if you're here today and, I mean, I even say that, I don't know a bunch of people here, so I'll throw this out there. Maybe you've never made that decision to say, okay, Jesus, I want to be on board with your project. And that comes through turning to Jesus in faith and just praying that I am the outsider. I am the one who needs to be brought near. And so, Jesus, I'm coming to you. I want to put my faith and my trust in you, and I want to be a part of what you are doing in this world. And get plugged into this church and be a part of what God is doing in and through Salon Community Church. And it's going to be foolishness to the world at times, but it's going to be such a sweet journey. And so would you pray with me quickly? God, I'm grateful for, for what you are doing in and through this community and more grateful that we are looking to you, Jesus Christ, as one who who did things that were foolish to the eyes of the world, but you turned them upside down, and we are singing your praises because you have been raised from the dead, and we know that putting all our bets with you, that is not a foolish place to be. So we give you thanks and praise in the name of